Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, for this weekly program in which we take an hour with a guest to discuss uh, how the study and, and the meditation of Scripture draws us closer to our Lord Jesus Christ and His church. And, of course, one of our goals in this program is to make sure that when we uh, we study the Word of God, that we that we do so within the context of the teacher that gave us the Word, which is the church guided by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and maybe later we'll need to define what I mean by that, those of you that are new to the program. But, I mean, just simply we recognize that the wonderful gift we have of the Bible in the canon of the Scripture especially the canon of the New Testament, in other words, which books are in that. We trust that these 27 books are in the New Testament because a, a group of bishops gathered at the end of the 4th century and discerned that these particular books were a part of the canon. And we, the reason we trusted that, that what they said was true was not just because they were good holy men, but because we believe that the Holy Spirit given by our Lord Jesus Christ to the church guides us into truth. That's why we trust that these books are inspired. And so as we study them, uh, we are seeking to understand them deeper and to help them grow in a deeper relationship with our Lord Jesus and the church that he established in his apostles. Our guest for today on this program is Dr. Kevin Vost. Kevin is a writer. Uh, I'll mention some of his books. He was raised Catholic, but was led away from the church by the partial truths of atheistic philosophy. He stayed there in the trenches of atheistic philosophy for about 25 years until Christ led him to philosophers and theologians who reopened his eyes to the profound truth and wisdom of the church that he had left behind. He's a former university psychology professor an American Mensa Research Review Committee member. He's the author of several books, including Memorize the Faith, Fit for Eternal Life, which is a wonderful examination of uh, physical fitness in the light of the philosophers. It's a wonderful book. Unearthing Your Ten Talents, From Atheism to Catholicism, and then coming soon, a book, a biography of St. Albert the Great. He lives with his wife and two sons in Springfield, Illinois, uh, Kevin, when I f- first became aware of, of Dr. Vost, it was because of his book, Fit for Eternal Life, which examines, again, uh, exercise, weightlifting programs, but in light of a philosophy and a, a better understanding of the human person, virtues and vices and disciplines, and uh, looking for balance in life. It's a wonderful book. Again, I recommend it, Fit for Eternal Life. But he comes to us today also talking about his journey out of atheism back to the Catholic faith. And the scriptures that Kevin has chosen for our examination today deal with his journey. And he has a lot of verses that we may get to, depending on time, divided up into three categories. The first scriptures deal with verses that challenged his atheism, especially uh, from the perspective of St. Thomas Aquinas as he explains these different verses. And we'll look at those in a moment. There's also a set of scriptures that showed to him the scripture foundation of the classic pagan virtues that he had respected. And then as a result of his own spiritual journey and the work of grace in his life, drew him deeper into those virtues. And then another group of verses that showed to him how Christianity calls out the absolute highest and best in us, in both spirit and body, fulfilling us as beings made in God's image. So we'll we'll try and get to those uh, as time allows. A reminder that this program is connected with an internet website, uh, deepinscripture.com. You can go also connect to it through chnetwork.org and then click on the appropriate link in which you can watch us online. You can find all the archives of the old Deep in Scripture programs as well as other information about the Coming Home Network International. But let me read the first two scriptures that Kevin and I will examine today and then we'll take a break and then Kevin will join us. The first comes from Romans chapter 1 verse 20. And again, these are 
scripture passages that challenged his atheistic uh, his views in life. He, he, he for twenty five years he had abandoned his Christian faith and gone into uh, atheism, and we'll talk about that when we come back. But these are scriptures that awakened him to uh, the reality of, of our Lord. Romans one twenty. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. And then also Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Do not forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. Kevin Vos. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Marcus. Thank, thank you for joining us here in the studio today. I, Those of you listening... Uh, Kevin has a lot of different areas we could talk about, right, Kevin? I mean, especially your memorizing scripture. That 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 was a part of your training, right? That came out of your what your master's program? Uh, yes, memorize the faith grew out of research research I did on memory improvement techniques uh, while I was outside the church and uh, obtaining a master's in psychology. Yes, which just confirms this uh, thing that when I was a Protestant, I always emphasized very strongly the need to memorize scripture. I mean, be ready for the battle, right? Yes, exactly. Sometimes today people get the idea that memorization somehow opposes deeper levels of understanding, but I think memory is a great aid. It's kind of hard to think deeply about things that you can't remember. Right, right. And it, when we read in the Psalms, David sitting out meditating on the Word of God when he's tending the sheep, he didn't have a roll of uh, a parchment with him. It, it, it was all a part of his memory which actually it was more common until probably the 20th century. My guess is that people remembered more. <laughs> yes, I think before we had all these wonderful tools of technology that are great aids, but also <laughs> don't do a whole lot to help us keep things inside our own heads. That's right, make us a bit lazy <clears throat> and depend on our iPhone or iPod or whatever it is that, even a pad and paper, a pencil in a, in a pad of paper. Yeah, exactly. And actually some of these memory techniques that have a strong Catholic heritage, St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, really uh, perfected some of the techniques I talk about, but they're kind of like uh, carrying around a pad of paper and a pencil in your own head. It's kind of how they work. It's an interior kind of writing if you if you master these techniques. All right. Well, that's in your your book, Memorize the Faith, in case any of you listening are interested. And uh, actually, maybe right now mention your website. Oh, sure. That's uh, drvost.com. It's just drvost.com. Because if they want to find out about any of the books, they could connect to it through sure. that site. Yes, I don't sell them directly myself, but there are links. And there's also, if you'd like to contact me, I have a contact uh, email address there. All right. Well, the scriptures you've chosen, Kevin, all connect to your journey. And uh, maybe remind the audience, in case they haven't heard your story. I mean, you were brought up in the usual hoops of the Catholic faith, but left it. And uh, you were way out there for a while. 
Yes, yes, I was, uh, you know, raised, uh, taught by wonderful Dominican nuns all through grade school, Viatorian priests through high school. Uh, but we were, we're sort of nominal Catholics, so we went to we went to mass, but we didn't really have a whole lot of uh, religious, you know, activity in the home. We didn't have prayer. We didn't really have a Bible in the home for years. Uh, in my teens, I became more immersed in the church for a while, and then in my late teens, I came across writings of uh, atheistic philosophers that really questioned the foundations of, of all I'd learned, and they pulled me away from the church. Uh, I never came to hate the church or anything like that. Um, I had such a wonderful uh, education there, but uh, I spent over 25 years thinking just the, the claims of the church for truth just simply weren't true. I thought uh, I'd read people who convinced me that to think of, there is a God was not reasonable or it was contrary to, to what we learn from science. And it was well, two and a half decades before uh, I realized the errors of my ways. If you look back on those 25 years, I mean, was there ever a passing thought about a, a creator or a passing thought about wanting God to help you in prayer or a passing thought that one day you'd stand before him responsible for your life during those 25 years that that really had been kind of pushed to the back of your mind? Yeah, actually, it had been put to, pushed to the back for the most part. You know, life was so busy at the time, a young family working, pursuing other degrees. So so part of the reason it took me so long to come back, I think, is because I was just so busy that time for reflection wasn't there. Those those questions I should have been thinking about, I really wasn't. They, they were pushed back. Interesting. When you look back on your catechetical days, um, when you think about your Catholic catechet, what was the time period? Uh, okay, I went through grade school in the late 60s and in the early to mid-70s, high school in the mid to late 70s. So interestingly, that if you any religious education you would have had during that time would have been during the time period that the old Baltimore Catechism idea of memorization of concepts would have been on the out. That's right. Uh, I, I have a copy of the Baltimore Catechism, which I read, I believe, for the first time just a year or two ago. That was not a part of my... My Catholic education. And actually, as I think back, I don't really remember a lot of details of exactly what it yeah. was that they taught us. See, I, I've I've become more and more convinced that the idea of question and answer catechetics for young children uh, is so important to planting seeds in their memory of concepts that they may not totally understand when they're young but that can come to fruition later. Do you, do you, how's your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm very much for that. There's often this idea that you don't want people memorizing things just by rote so they can parrot something back. But if they do have that in their memory, as life goes on, as they mature, there they have it right in their own memory. They have a chance to, to ponder this and reflect upon these ideas again and again later as they get deeper levels of understanding and maturity. So I think there's a great deal of value of teaching some actual content, even actually memorizing the fundamentals of the faith when children are young. And you might be an example of what happens when you don't have any of that. Because like you said, you you came up through that particular time period in religious formation in, in the late 20th century when there's a lot of experimentation going on, especially a rejecting of the old ways of catechizing our children. Exactly, yeah. If I would have known uh, more of the heritage of our church, I, I couldn't have been pulled away from it because I found later that the, the writings that pulled me away were very shallow compared to the depth of the writing that was there within the church, but I did not know didn't it. Didn't even know it, yeah. No. Okay, well, that's, oh, you know, in some ways we're still, our whole catechetical process is still in the process of reevaluating itself here in America, and I, and I think it's on the mend in many, many ways as I'm hearing around the country. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the scriptures that you've chosen that particularly dealt with your atheism, you mentioned this Romans passage. How did this come to your awareness in, in the time of your journey? This Romans passage. Okay, that particular passage, uh, I don't believe uh, I had come across it. In, well, I'm, until I'd come back to the church. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Really, I was kind of already there as I started you know, re-questioning things. So for you, it wasn't so much this passage that got your journey back, but it was what the reading of Thomas Aquinas, right? Uh, yes, it was. So when I read Thomas Aquinas, kind of like both of these passages, the, the Romans passage about how we can uh, see God through nature, through the world. And then the passage from Exodus about God saying, I am who am. They're kind of like coming at God from two different directions. The first uh, in Romans shows how through our natural reason, through natural revelation, if things are really thought through, it can point us to God, make us aware that there is a God who exists. It can tell us uh, certain things about God because 
uh, creation reflects in some extent imperfectly the creator uh, from effects from things in the world we can kind of work our way backwards and learn some things about the, the ultimate cause of those effects so from starting with our reason with our senses the verse in Romans shows that we can we can figure out some things about God that he exists that he is eternal that he's powerful that you know that he is God and in the Exodus statement uh, well, also, so, so we can come back and you can use reason and say, yes, there is a God. This, this universe didn't start on its own. But to, to some, this leads to what they call the God of the philosophers. Yes, mm. there's some kind of ultimate being out there, but, but I really don't know exactly who or, or what. We can only tell so much about him. It, it, let's pause there because you're ready to go into the Exodus passage because that's such an important thing. I mean, yes. it, um, in some ways, that's where the founders of our country were. Right, I mean, they agreed to the reality of there was a creator. Yes, it's it's there in the Declaration of Independence, or you know, in, in our Constitution, it talks about that. But many of our founders were more deists, in the sense that they, they there's a God, there's a creator, there's a source, there's a start, but how he's involved with us on a day by day basis, someone would say, I'm not going there. You know, I'm not I'm not going to define that. But at least they recognize, in this verse, they, they recognize that if you look at creation, all right, he's, in fact, this says, ever since the creation of the world, th- the beauty in that statement is ex- almost another way of saying that God so loved the world that he gave his son. In other words, from the very beginning of time, God wanted us to be able to see him in his handiwork. Right? I mean, it's... Yes. Ever since the creation, but but if that's true, then Kevin, why since the beginning of time there have been so many philosophers that didn't see it? Yeah, and that that's the very important question. And part of that is is the concept of creation, and some of those old uh, ancient philosophers did not see the universe as being something that was created. They believed that it was uh, et- also eternal. Some who also believed in God believed that they were both. Uh, both eternal and one of the things that thomas aquinas and other theologians done has done is they show how using reason even even from the starting point that okay let's assume that the universe has already been here even from that premise you can reason to some very fundamental facts about the fact that god must exist and he's going to have these uh, aspects of being eternally powerful of being all-knowing of preserving the universe uh, a being that would even just preserve the universe, keep it from fading away into non-existence, would also have to be all-loving because he's he's sustaining all this of his own will. So there's just there's so much we can learn uh, from the world that we see uh, about us, even if we don't understand that it's a, a creation, that that's something that God himself had made. All right. And then you chose the, the Exodus 3 passage, a, a little bit different angle. Yeah, it's a different angle. Now here we have you know, direct revelation from God to man. And one of the things that really astounded me about this passage is, uh, for me, this bridged the gap between the God of the philosophers and the God of you know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, because Thomas Aquinas reasons uh, you know, the, the various possible attributes of God that we can just deduce from using our reasoning. And one of the most fundamental premises he comes up with is the idea that God is a, the only being whose what he calls essence and existence are one. It is the very nature of God to be and to be the foundation of all being and all existence. And he can drive at this through profound philosophical analysis, building on the works of Aristotle and all the greatest thinkers. And he says, you know, essentially, and by the way, this is stated explicitly in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus where where God says to Moses, you know, he says, well, Moses said, well, what should, what should I call you, God, when I go and, and tell the people? He says, say, you know, I am who am, which, which uh, contains that concept. God is being itself. There's a quote in uh, John Paul's Faith and Reason. I can't remember the Latin word for his wonderful yeah. encyclical. Fides et ratio. Yes, ratio. And uh, he's quoting Anselm. And Anselm comes to this uh, profound conclusion in which he says something like, it isn't just that, that there's nothing beyond God that we can imagine. It's that God himself is beyond our imagination. 
In other words, he yes. he is just not the end of our ability to imagine. He's beyond it. You know, and that's that's where we get caught up with scientists, assuming that everything that's real is only within our imagination, only within the capacity of the human mind to imagine or observe or measure. That's the, the limit of creation. And Anselm gets blown away by the idea that actually he's beyond our ability to fathom. We can see him in his creation. But the minute we try and go beyond that, we're overstepping our own bounds and our, the arrogance. Yes. W- would you say that one of the keys then in both these scriptures for you and your own journey, in both sense, was a growing in humility? Oh, it definitely was. And kind of building on that concept too about God being beyond our imagination, just a little analogy I like to use myself is uh, so many of those atheists you know, have that limited concept of God. They kind of make him within their own image and give him human type limitations but he's so far beyond our imagination i I picture it as uh you know imagine that an atheistic person is in a completely dark room but then uh if you come to god like the light switch is turned on but imagine that there is a, a black hole over in the corner of the room or a bottomless pit the light is on now you are aware of god but you realize you still can't see all the way into that black hole down what's in the bottom of that black pit you can't grasp it it's beyond your comprehension but now at least you're aware that well there they are hmm. yeah to, uh, before we move on i want to, to talk about the awareness that was happening within you through the reading of aquinas as well as these scriptures and it really is tied in with this issue of humility and grace it isn't merely that you got more data Right, that right. that wasn't what brought you in a deeper relationship with God and His Church. It wasn't you just all of a sudden got some data you didn't have before, but there's something else was going on at a different level. Yeah, it, it sure was at, at multiple levels. There was that intellectual level, the the facts, the logic, but another thing you talk about the humility um, that came through in, in Aquinas's approach himself. Uh, so many of the modern writers, especially some of these modern atheists, they kind of write as if you know reason developed when they developed their own reasoning capacities. And when they came of age, <laughs> then they solved all the problems of the universe. But to read Aquinas, before he addresses any problem, he addresses uh, all, the, the, all the major thinkers who came before him. He typically, in the Summa Theologica, he will address objections to the argument that he will make. And some say he sometimes lays out those objections better than the original you know, opponents laid them out themselves, but then he goes on to weigh them pros and cons and pick out the partial truths and try to work his way as much as, you know, within the capacity of his reason to the end revelation to the, to the full truth. So there was just a tremendous humility in uh, Aquinas' approach that really, really spoke to me as well. Yeah, the, 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 the modern atheists limit their thinking to the horizontal and no vertical element, if you want to call that the spiritual. Yes. Right. Right? They limit it all to the horizontal. Um, there are some that want to re- overreact and think that all that's important is the vertical. Right? That's right. That's right. And, and yet, as from a Catholic perspective, we recognize the both hand of God's message in the horizontal as well as the vertical, both, both a part of revelation. Yes, exactly. And I guess in some extent we could, you know, just roughly compare the, the horizontal to the realm of reason and the vertical to the realm of revelation, what's coming to us from God. And yes, so many, uh, the modern atheists, you know, they just, on principle, they're dealing only with that horizontal level, only with the material world. So spiritual issues, they kind of rule out from the start. Uh, they also tend to see the world entirely through the realm of science and also ignore philosophy, not only theology, but just philosophy that can also address uh, deeper questions, not only, you know, in terms of cause and effect, A causes B, B causes C, but you can think on metaphysical terms, well, well why is there a cause and effect? You know, why are there, why is there a universe to begin with? I'm in, embarrassed to admit that, this, although it's just you and me talking, I know nobody else is listening to us, uh, but in my own journey, I, from a personal experience, recognized that I grew up in a culture that did not f- believe that philosophy was important because I went to science school. I went to an engineering school in the Midwest 
And every class I ever took, the question was always, well, how will this get me a job? That was all we asked. Mm -hmm. But, you know, four years of physics, four years of chemistry, four years of math, not one philosophy class. It wasn't important. I mean, this idea that I can be a scientist without ever studying any level of philosophy. I didn't see anything wrong with that at all. Then later I went to evangelical Protestant seminary, committed to scripture alone, but not one course in philosophy. Again, not important. Uh, from your perspective, you know, talk about the absurdity of both those perspectives. Yeah, I know. Well, in, the, in that encyclical, again, Faith and Reason, uh, from John Paul II, he talks about uh, extremes of scientism and uh, was it fetism, which right. is faith alone, and they're both kind of missing, missing the picture there. Yeah, with science, I looked at it as you know, science tells us you know, well, we can do this and we can do that, we can figure out how to do all these things, and but it doesn't address the question. Well, we we can do that, but should we? So to get into questions of of value, you know, you have revelation, and you also have philosophy, which which is ignored, uh, coming from the side of faith. You know, of course, we have. Uh, you know, revelation, which is coming from God, but there's some needs to be some means of interpretation there where reason has to be involved. So, yeah, embracing God doesn't mean giving up your reason. You know, John Paul II calls faith and reason the two wings on which we fly to truth. And when I came back to the church, I realized that in my own case, uh, I respected reason in terms of science and philosophy, but I, I felt faith was something that that opposed them. This is also something that the new atheists will try to try to uh, to argue. But faith does not oppose reason. It really completes it and goes where, where reason cannot, not to contradict it, but to bring us to higher those higher vertical truths. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll go to your next set of categories. And these that are scriptures that helped you see the scriptural foundation of what would be called the classical pagan virtues. We'll look at that when we come back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined today by Dr. Kevin Vost, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grota. I am joined today by Dr. Kevin Vost, and we're looking at scriptures that um, he found that drew him back to faith from his atheistic perspective, but also now we're looking at some scriptures that uh, explain these scriptures in, in context. Uh, Kevin, you say verses that showed the scriptural foundation of the classic pagan virtues. What are the classic pagan virtues? Okay, uh, yes, when, when I was away from the church, uh, I was very much immersed in the philosophy of people like Aristotle and the ancient Stoics, uh, and they were uh, very much endorsed Virtues. A good life is a life of, of wisdom and virtue and acting right. For example, the four cardinal or classic virtues were uh, self-control or temperance, uh, prudence, which is a practical wisdom, justice, giving each person their rightful due, and fortitude or courage, you know, being brave and doing what needs to be done. So, uh, you know, I'd read deeply of these different people, Cicero and Aristotle and so forth, and had a great respect for the virtues and also as a psychologist because... Virtues are like perfections of our powers. They bring out the best in us. So to be most psychologically well-adjusted and healthy, we're going to try to develop these virtues in ourselves to, to make the most of ourselves. And on the plane of the, the natural philosophers, there was, there's a lot of a good thought out there on virtue, a lot of helpful uh, guidance. Now, would 
an atheistic philosopher or an atheistic psychologist, would they still have held to these virtues? And if so, where did they come from and what's their source? Okay, yeah, the, the modern atheistic psychologists don't typically talk about virtues. This is something, again, that I came to realize more in depth when I came back to the church, that it, that it was a part of the church. Even as a psychologist, uh, I thought there was, in some ways, a lot more profound psychology in ancient philosophy than there was in modern psychology. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it was really more from those mod- those ancient uh, philosophers that I realized the values of these virtues. See, I, you also tell me whether uh, I'm way off base here, but I kind of think that Freud, who has had such an, a major influence on modern psychology and, and in many ways the way we think and culture that we're blind to, not only uh, was trying to write God off as just a, a created father figure, right but was really in essence against the reality of conversion. The idea of an authentic spiritual awakening to the vertical other, that he would have completely explained the reality of that away, not just because there's no God, but because that idea of a spiritual awakening was uh, a myth. Would that, would you agree with that? Yes, yes, Sigmund Freud I would, uh, would say would say that said that, that, that God was an illusion, kind of a man-produced thing, kind of a, a wish fulfillment. And, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't see within us, uh, you know, this, this higher calling that we're made an image of God. It was almost the opposite. You know, he talked about the id, this, this uh, seething, most important part of us that's all about lust and desires and, and violence and so forth. And according to Freud, kind of, this, is, this is kind of us at our core. It's this the thin veneer of reason, our ego, and the superego, which are kind of the restraints that we just get from culture to kind of contain all this. But in a way, Freud had a very, very pessimistic uh, view of man, uh, you know, kind of like original sin, but without the redeeming grace. Hmm. Uh, so, right, Freud would have, uh, you know, had very little connection with this concept of virtue. He also really had, in my opinion, did not really expect, respect the intellect and the powers of reason. He shifted so much to the idea of all these unconscious forces uh, uh, driving us. He kind of, in, a, in some sense, denied uh, free will in important ways because we could, you know, pretty much blame our behavior on things that happened to us in our childhood, while denying the fact that that we still have some powers to to make choices uh, once we're grown up. That I remember when I was in college, I took a course in philo- physiological psychology. It was the only course I took in my scientific background, which, in essence, is almost were driven by our biology. You know, the ultimate of that would have been Pavlov. In other words, it's just yes. merely all we are is a response of our sensual uh, triggers. Uh, it's interesting that you look at it from that standpoint that all we are is biology, but if you look at it from also the other extreme of, of fideism where the, the, the strong Calvinist view is that we also have no free will. We're totally lost in a corrupted nature. We have no free will to really choose God. Anyone that chooses God is only because God chose him. Man had nothing whatsoever to do it. I mean, these on these ultimate extremes almost end up in the same place. Yeah, it is very interesting how sometimes it works out that way, and I agree with that. There's a very similar overly pessimistic view that's not a com- complete view of, of uh, what man is, what God made us to be. Let's look at a few of these wonderful gr- verses you've chosen under this category in which you, you saw that Scripture to your surprise, offered a foundation for these virtues that were more recognized even in the pagan philosophers. Wisdom 8.7, for example. And if anyone loves righteousness, her labors are virtues, for she teaches self-control and prudence, justice and courage. Nothing in life is more profitable for men than these. Yes, and this one kind of has really amazed me when I saw that it was in Scripture because I knew from all my writing how fundamental these were to some of the ancient uh, uh, pagan philosophers. Right there you have the four cardinal virtues. Self-control is temperance, and we have prudence, justice, and courage, uh, or fortitude, and nothing in life is more profitable than these. And these just encapsulate so much in our behavior. Uh, in fact, when I wrote that book, Fit for Eternal Life, I used these four cardinal virtues as kind of ways to think about our pursuit of taking care of our body, that self-control or temperance, of course, ties so closely into diet. Uh, courage or fortitude I tie into exercise. Fortitude implies the ability to do hard things to achieve a good. And sometimes, you know, getting up in the morning and exercising, all that, that's a, that's a hard thing. We need to build fortitude even to take care of our bodies. Prudence is a practical wisdom, kind of putting everything together in a, in a sensible way. 
and justice is giving each person their due. And in the fitness realm, I focus on that in terms of the special needs of different groups, like the elderly or women or teens. Uh, but there's just so many parts of our lives are affected by these by these virtues, and there they are in the Old Testament scriptures. They're not only in the writings of the pagan philosophers. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, talks about the three apostolic virtues, in other words, prayer, charity, and fasting, you know, prayer, mm -hmm. almsgiving, and fasting, which parallel these, right? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, fasting is a way of disciplining yourself to strengthen the muscles of your will, right? I mean, Yes, oh, exactly. And the prayer can also be tied into the to the uh, exercise aspect because a friend of mine who's been on your show, Peggy Bowes, mm -hmm. in her rosary workout, there are actual ways you can systematically incorporate prayer even into your fitness training because, you know, as the church teaches, we are what they call hylomorphic unities. We're body and soul. We're, we're called to tend to both. I'm looking at your list here. I don't see it here, but the wisdom, uh, the the Proverbs passage. It's actually in Psalms and Proverbs, and maybe even also in Wisdom that says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. <clears throat> yes. From your background as an atheist, obviously you wouldn't, you would completely have disagreed with that. Or what, from an atheist standpoint, what is the beginning of wisdom? Ooh, <laughs> that's a good question. The beginning of wisdom is uh hmm, trying to think back to what i thought you know, that was then. in other uh, words if they would say okay if you want to get wise where do you begin what's what's the the, the the foundational stone of of wisdom from ann rand's perspective mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. it wouldn't be fear of god no no in that case it, it would be follow your reason, follow evidence wherever it leads. There's actually a very prominent atheist, Anthony Flew, who who turned back to God in the last years of his life, and he said the idea that, that led him there was a, an argument from Socrates to say, always follow the argument wherever it would lead. So that was the idea there. It'd be kind of like, kind of like it would be be open to the truth, but then you, know, you eventually find the truth is God. <laughs> but the atheists you know, typically don't, don't know that, at least while they're still atheists. And you know, my perspective on that is, it, again, it's parallel to the idea that if we're going to shoot a rocket to the moon from, well, I don't think it's Houston anymore. I think we do it from Florida now, right? And that, But if it's off, if the trajectory is off by a fraction of an inch, unless it's corrected, you'll miss the moon. So it's where you begin is often a key to the trajectory of where you're going to end up. And what the scriptures are teaching is that the beginning of wisdom is fear of God. You, you begin there, right? And I think talk mm -hmm. a bit also in your own journey from your atheism back to faith, how putting fear of God back in the equation readjusted your own understanding of philosophy and psychology and your own understanding of yourself, your marriage, your children. Well, yeah, it, it did play a, a big role at first when I, and when I came back to God and the church. And also it ties into that concept of humility. The people who don't fear God, I mean, are kind of full of themselves and full of arrogance. And it's it's all about me. It's all about, you know, the conclusions of my own thought processes. So when you you fear God, I mean, my first idea was to, to uh, when I came back, the sense of a, of a fear of God, of a fear of offending him and, and his laws is also like a, a regret of, of rejecting him when he was there the whole time. Hmm. Uh, but that is a true beginning of wisdom. Uh, that says, you know, be open to, to God's revelation and to use your reason as guide, guided uh, through that revelation, as guided through through the church, through the magisterium, the teaching body that uh, that God had set up for us. Particularly when I look at this verse that you chose, uh, if anyone loves righteousness, her labors are virtues. If she teaches self-control and prudence, for she teaches self-control and prudence, justice and courage. It, it's just looking at these, quote, pagan, virtues mm -hmm. that depending on whether you're beginning with a uh, fear of God or not depends on how you use those virtues. You can use those virtues totally from a self-centered perspective. In other words, what's just for me? Justice for me, right? Or courage. I mean, again, Ayn Rand, this idea, what's best for me? You know, that I'm going to be the one, you know, self-control, if the goal is for me, or is it honoring God? Changes the whole perspective on the virtues. 
It sure does, you know, because the virtues are, you know, perfections of what we are. But if you don't understand that we are beings made in the image of God and made to serve and love him, then like you say, yeah, you can go far, far off base with these. Let's try another scripture here before we take a break and then move into the other section. Um, Proverbs 24, 3 through 4, by wisdom a house is built and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Okay, this, this was quite a surprise to me. When I, I wrote the book, Unearthing Your Ten Talents, I talked about ten virtues that Thomas Aquinas talked about. He talked about those four cardinal virtues we, we just spoke about and the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. He also talked about what he called intellectual virtues, uh, like the moral virtues guide us to do, do the good. The intellectual virtues help us uh, obtain truth. And, and Thomas uh, based his analysis primarily on the writings of Aristotle, where he goes in great depth on what these virtues mean and so forth. But then I, I came to realize later that uh, these are also scriptural. Right there within the scripture, we have all three of these intellectual virtues within the very same verse of Proverbs. Um, another point I make there, uh, so understanding knowledge, another word for knowledge is science because it comes from Latin skio, which means to know. So the three primary intellectual virtues are understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. And Thomas actually lays them out in, a, in an ordered hierarchy with wisdom as, as the highest uh, intellectual virtue. So one line I talk about is that in some ways modern scientists, they're kind of like, I say, how many scientists can dance on the top of one pillar? <laughs> because they tend to focus only on science, ignoring this, these virtues of understanding and the most important virtue of wisdom. And of course the beginning of wisdom, as we said, is the, the fear of the Lord. One of my favorite parables is the parable of the sower. I mean, that's John Paul's, one of his favorite parables too. Yes. And you have the four different soils where the seed is equally planted on all four soils. And the first three soils is a variety of problems. It didn't germinate, but it does in the fourth. And in the Mark expression of that, the one difference is understanding. That's what makes the difference between the seed landing in the rocky soil or the soil covered with all the different birds or the soil with the crowded away by the, the tensions of life. It was this idea of understanding that that enabled that seed to grow, which seems like an expression of what you're talking about here. Yeah, it sure is. I, I had not been aware of that, but, but uh, yeah, all these, you know, we're, we're there to, to, to do good, to be charitable, but we are, are also expected to use our minds to seek the truth and the truths of God uh, so there's a profound understanding, even within the scripture, uh, of this intellectual part of our nature, which I never realized was there. The, the, the atheists I read that took me away from the church had me thinking that the scriptures were, were, were not quite of the same intellectual caliber as these philosophers and theologians. So, so I had a lot to learn, though. Well, of course, one thing we recognize from our faith as well as uh, from, just from scripture is that grace is really the the source of this understanding anyway the, the the fear of god is a gift of the holy spirit let's take another break kevin we come back let's let's take a little bit from at least your third category of verses that, that show how christianity calls out the absolute highest and best in us in both spirit and body you're listening to deep in scripture this is your host marcus Grode. i am joined today by dr kevin vost and you're hearing us on ewtn your global catholic radio network The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.com. Dot org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined today by Dr. Kevin Vost. What's your website again? Just make sure. It's uh, drvost.com, D-R-V-O-S-T.com. Okay, just in case we run out of time. 
I want to make sure we we deal with some of the scriptures. These will all on the website for the audience, but these are scriptures that you found in your journey, awakened to you, the way in which Christianity calls out the absolute highest and best in us, in both spirit and body. And, you know, it, it, there's a reaction, right? Sometimes, I mean, in our culture, makes a big emphasis on be all that you can be and, you know, but sometimes we uh, Christians reacted against that and downplayed that aspect. I don't know if you've dealt with that in your own work, Kevin. Uh, Yes, yes, I have come across that, uh, implying that, I mean, somehow there's an idea that if you do make the most of yourself somehow somehow you're offending god that way somehow it, it necessarily ties into pride it's or, almost a modern gnosticism too all that counts is the spirit the body doesn't matter and i've seen that uh and a de-emphasis on beauty uh and saying that well if you want to emphasize good looking body or you want to be healthy well that's just vanity well that's an overreaction one of the verses you chose here is second peter th- <clears throat> the one through one five, <clears throat> excuse me, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now that's a long list of good things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it very inspiring and just to kind of go through it a bit at a time, saying these are things you're going to use to supplement your faith. So the faith is foundational, but but if we you know hold faith in Christ, we're called to live in a certain way. And we need to, to uh, supplement that faith with virtue, first of all, and this is written in the Greek, is the Greek uh, term for virtue, erite, was excellence. So we're called to excellence. We're called to make the most of ourselves as Christians. Uh, and I find it interesting, too, as we go through this list mm-hmm. and virtue with knowledge, well, there's knowledge. That's one of the intellectual virtues that we talked about with uh, Proverbs 24, 3, 4. Knowledge with self-control, self-control being temperance, one of the cardinal virtues, and self-control with uh, steadfastness related to the virtue of fortitude and, and holding on. Then we have uh, also you know, godliness. They're going to be godly and, and try to uh, you know, live like God and as God would want us and respecting God. Also you know, reaching out to others. We're going to have... Uh, brotherly affection there and, and kindness and generosity and then finally we reach that that highest virtue we're called to is charity or love so i just love this passage as a way to a call to all these different virtues uh because god wants us to to live that way he wants us to to make the most of ourselves and thereby to be able to have the most to offer to others this verse is interesting because if if you study it the question is, are these virtues that he enumerates, that Peter enumerates, are they all just a list of seven or eight things, or are they are they a progression that you grow in? In other words, there's a sense in which faith is the first of the virtues. You know, that's, yes. that's kind of like beginning with the fear of God. And then they progress. I see that too, as, as one leads to another, they're all interconnected, but, but you're kind of moving up, up the chain in a sense that highest of the virtues, which is love or charity, which should ultimately color the way all those other virtues are expressed. Also, charity is foundational. It's what brings faith to life, uh, it, what makes these virtues serve the right end, which is the glorification and, and serving God. Of course, you threw in the Matthew 5 passage, which is a hard one. Uh, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's an awful large percentage of Christianity that kind of pushes the Sermon on the Mount out of the picture because it seems not only too difficult for us to attain, but for many particular Christians, um, it is not something we need to worry about because of our total depravity. We can't reach that in this side of heaven. Uh, but yet, Jesus lifts that up as a goal for us. Yes, and of course, we're not just pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. There's where uh, grace comes in. But yeah, he's calling us to be be perfect as the Father is perfect. And and uh, I use this, this verse also in Fit for Eternal Life to point out that the, the Latin verb, you know, perfecere, also means to be complete or to be whole. You know, to, to love God with all our heart and mind and soul with, with all of us, that would imply, you know, taking care of our, our, 
our souls, our spiritual self, also our physical self. In other words, you know, God calls us to, to make the most of everything that he's given us in body and soul. That next passage you chose, 1 Corinthians six nineteen, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? If I remember correctly, the context was about men, uh, you know, frequenting uh, brothels. Yes. And uh, so they're recognizing that what we do with our body is very, very important. Yes, it sure is. There's a few places even within Corinthians where St. Paul talks about this concept. And yes, he does it around, right around this scripture talk about, uh, you know, you wouldn't join the, you know, you don't join the body of Christ in the church with, with a prostitute. And everything you do with your body is important. And that also ties in then to taking care of your body. We know that St. Paul also uses the, the athletic metaphors, talking mm-hmm. about runner running the race, and he's not just going to be a boxer shadow boxing the air. So this concept of the body as a temple colors all, all kinds of things about our life, our health, our fitness, uh, the way we dress, our modesty, uh, to really you know give respect to the body. And that's another kind of a, a lie or a myth out there that somehow the Catholic Church you know denigrates or puts down the body, and it's you know total, totally the opposite. As a psychologist and, and as someone that's come back from atheism, what where do we begin? What about those of us that are are caught up in the soup of our culture and all the different voices out there? Where where does someone begin to start moving back to God? Yeah, that is an excellent question because we are now so immersed in the cultural messages. You know, from the minute we wake up with the television, with the radio, with the internet. Um, so I think you know, have time to step back. Turn some of that off for a while and think and reflect. And personally, I try to immerse myself as much as possible in a counterculture, which is that Catholic culture, the Catholic media through books, through radio, through television. You know, we become what we think about. So think about the the things of God. Yeah, and I mean, the easy answer often was, you know, read the Bible every day, but sometimes it's hard to know where to begin. And I think one of the beauties of that is our, our church, guided by the Spirit, has given us scriptures every day for the Mass. That's a good place to begin. What did you say? For every day of the year. Well, Kevin, thanks so much. Again, your website is drvost, drvost.com, in case anyone wants to to connect to your writings, as well as uh, do you have some stuff on your website about your about your physical fitness ideas? I sure do. There's a, People can ask me questions through that, and I, I also announce upcoming talks and so on and so forth. So, And I welcome people's questions. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kevin. And thank you for, for joining us on this program. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. There's a little more verses on the website for this program than we were able to cover in today's program, but our goal was to help you see the beautiful fingerprints of God in His creation as He draws us closer to Him. God bless you. See you soon.